Welcome to the Outsider Theory Podcast, where we explore the mutations of theories outside of the authorized spaces of intellectual life, as well as the ever-alluring figure of the outsider. If you're interested in this project, please subscribe to the podcast and follow my work at OutsiderTheory.com and at OutsiderTheory on Twitter. My guest today is Aaron Schulman, and he's here to talk about his 2019 book, The Age of Disenchantments, which is a collective biography of the Panero family, who are, you know, a prominent and, and significant and, um, you know, complex um, phenomenon within 20th century Spanish literary culture. And it's one of the books that I've most enjoyed in the past um, five or 10 years. And it really kind of opened up a whole new world to me in some ways. Um, before I encountered it, I, I had been somewhat aware. So there are three sons, as we'll get into, of this family. Um, and the one I had been familiar with previously was Leopoldo Maria Panero, who's the the sort of poet modi of his generation and and is is known as sort of a you know um going through periods of institutionalization and um schizophre- apparent schizophrenia as well as drug addiction so um I, you know one thing that's interesting in the past is like literature and Spania. So that was sort of how I got interested in him. But otherwise, I was really not aware of the larger um, family situation and history that he came out of. And so, you know, getting the the full story as you provide it really blew my mind. Um, So to get started, I'd be interested in, um, you you go over this in the book, but there's a, a sort of story of how you sort of caught the bug of, of, fascination with this family, which then reading your book kind of passed on to me. Um, and the, I, I believe the starting point was um, seeing this 1976 documentary called El Desencanto, which is um, somewhat obscure in the English speaking world, but is a kind of cult film in, in Spain. And perhaps you could talk about, you know, how you discovered that film mm-hmm. and just how it kind of led you down this path. Yeah, sure. Well, thank, thanks so much for the kind words about my book. And, um, so let's see, El, El, El Desencanto. I was living in Madrid in 2012. Uh, my wife is from Spain, from Cordoba. And I had a friend named Javi who's a huge film guy. And he had a projector and we would go over to his house to watch movies sometimes. And he, you know, I was working, you know, I would, I hadn't published any books then, but he knew I was a you know literary guy. I was working on a novel and kind of books were my life. And, and he invited us over and he, and he was just kind of like, Aaron, you're going to love this documentary. I don't want to tell you much. It's just about this really weird Spanish literary family. And it's well known here in Spain. So I kind of didn't know at all what I was walking into. And, you know, it's this 90 minute documentary and it, this kind of has this rough, feel to it, which I, you know, there's some kind of abrupt cuts and it's, but it's kind of in a really appealing, the way the imperfections of it are really appealing. And later I learned all of, you know, I kind of did the, the a lot of behind the scenes digging about the making of, of the movie, but essentially it's just that this, uh, the three sons and their mother talking about their, their family and, you know, Primarily, it's, you know, the, the dead, the, the dead father of the family, the patriarch, who it turns out was kind of a well-known poet in the Franco regime and a kind of culture czar. He, you know, he's not there. And it's, they sort of rewrite the whole family history, retelling stories, saying things they've never said before, arguing. And they do it in a really, like, flamboyant, kind of vicious, but also very literary way. And you have the sense of that they really they kind of they kind of see themselves as characters in a novel or in they kind of can't exist outside of literature and it's just I always think of it is they have this this visionary quality of somehow anticipating reality tv they're like pre-kardashian kardashians and they just kind of let it all hang out this performative exhibitionism that I think they knew and you know pulling out all the the family you know dirty laundry 
and it's just, but it, they do it in this highbrow way. So it's like this, the lowbrow nature of reality TV combined with the super high, highbrow family. And it's, and it's just, there's some explosive moments. There's like taboos of like incest and other stuff that's kind of t- touched on. And I just, when the film ended, and I probably only understood about half of it, even though my Spanish was fluent just between cultural references and how fast they talked and and because they're drunk through like half of it and and they are just speaking so fast but I just had this feeling of like I just I think I just ended the film I kind of felt like my you know my eyebrows had been singed and I was like what was this and so it left me with just a lot of a lot of questions of like I just wanted to know everything like who are these people like what so what's what is this documentary because really you know until you get all this, this sort of the cultural tapestry that they're exist inside of, it's hard, in their own family history. It's really hard to, to understand. So, and also earlier that year, I had uh, read um, Nazi literature in the Americas. Is that what it's called in English? Um, yeah. by, by Roberto Bolaño, who's one of my favorite writers. And I remember just feeling like this was a, it was like an after fiction chapter from that because it was about a fascist father and these sons who rebelled during the dictatorship and so it just really started with me wanting wanting to know more and then the next day I just started started digging and then you know over several years eventually it all grew into a book yeah so this uh it's funny before I spoke to you you know I I had this kind of sense of this as a highly Bolaño-esque story. And so then when we spoke, you kind of confirmed that this was one of your, one of the influences that kind of shaped this project. And definitely that book, you know, which for those unfamiliar is essentially a sort of, um, it's like an encyclopedia of sort of fake literary biographies um, of supposed sort of Nazi or fascist writers um, in both South and North America. And um, so it's, it's kind of this, I mean, I think of it in relation as a, a sort of um, uh, a book that's clearly modeled on Borges's um, Universal History of Infamy um, and just Borges's whole project of creating these kind of fake literary biographies and so on. But, um, you know, one thing that it does is it kind of imagines this, uh, this sort of um, dark flip side of, you know, say more heroic narratives of literary history where you have these kind of, you know, ideological and moral anti-heroes who, you know, are um, a- affiliated with, you know, the, the, the sort of discredited, you know, morally and politically and ideologically, you know, regimes and, and projects of the 20th century. And then Bolaño himself expands one of these into the wonderful novel Distant Star, where you have this kind of avant-garde poet who's a a Pinochet um, supporter. That's my that's my favorite my favorite. Yeah, well, I, I guess I really love the big ones, but that's that one I come back to, and that's the one I always recommend to people who are coming to Bolaño for the first time. It's incredible. Yeah, same. It's 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 fantastic. So. Um, so, you know, and, and you, as I recall in the book, you sort of, um, you begin with a more familiar story from Spanish literary history, which is the death of Garcia Lorca, which, you know, is in some ways a, a sort of interesting, um, you know, if that's like the, you know, Panero's story is kind of the shadow side of that or something, because basically with Lorca, we have a story that's, um, you know, a, one of a kind of literary and political martyrdom, right? Where this, this um, you know, great, brilliant poet um, is is essentially killed for his, you know his beliefs and sexuality, and whose death kind of marks the end of this period of cultural efflorescence that you know was occurring in Spain during that kind of topsy turvy period. And then on the other hand, we have the aforementioned patriarch of of this family as a young man, Leopoldo Panero who is, is friends with Lorca and is affiliated with all sorts of, you know, more left-wing and Republican writers. Um, and he undergoes a, an experience that 
uncannily parallels Lorca's and yet the, the outcome is essentially the opposite, right? So maybe if you could, I mean, if, if that's in a way the, the sort of origin story of this literary family, um, perhaps you could retell it and, um, yeah. you know, think about that, that, think about that relationship between that, you, that parallel that you draw between him mm-hmm. and Lorca. Yeah, well, I, I, I always thought of Lorca as the ghost that haunted my book, but I mean, you could make the bigger argument that he's really like the ghost that haunts Spain and Spanish literature in the 20th century. I mean, in probably why I opened with that and, and because there was a, you know, a direct, it's, well, it's just the most dramatic way to to introduce so many themes around literature, the Spanish Civil War and the family itself, but it was so, but it wasn't just metaphorical, you know, like you were saying, there's really interwoven into to Leopoldo Panera, the father's life. He was friends with Garcia Lorca and then hit, hit, Leopoldo's best friend was Luis Rosales, who was also from Granada. And he was the one who hid Lorca in his, you know, it, his, he was with the, the fascist uprising, but that, the interesting thing, you know, in Spain during that time, it wasn't just like, you know, you're a fascist. I'm not talking to you. We don't even know each other. We exist in separate bubbles. And it was, you know, there were, there was family split, there was friends. And even as, you know, there, after the, the first up, the uprising to the start and people are getting killed in the streets, it's still like, you know, you have friends uh, on the other side. And so Luis Rosales was, even though Lorca was kind of technically on the other side, Luis Rosales was trying to protect him, even as he was going to the front to, you know, fight the the Republic um, and, uh, you know, that Lorca was supported in. And there's in the, it's a, and definitely the, the um, Lorca's death, death is the shadow that has followed the Rosales family for, you know, almost a century now of, of who, you know, who ratted, ratted them out, which was, which I think now there's a kind of consensus that it was one of the brothers, one of the other Rosales sons. So that's a whole thing. But that Rosales was Leopoldo's best friend. Um, they all hung out in Madrid in the thirties together. Pablo Neruda was there. It was this kind of romantic, exciting time for poetry. And then Leopoldo, yeah, he had the, um, he, he had a similar experience. He was in uh, territory which the the uprising took in his his hometown in Astorga in, in Leon and he was in, imprisoned and then almost executed except that his mother was a distant Frank, uh, distant cousin of Franco's wife and managed to save him and then after that he enlisted in Franco's army to, kind of out of a survival instinct and then it's hard to know really it's kind of mystery what happened but by you know by the end of the war Leopoldo was writing fascist poetry and he had you know, fought in the army and it seemed like he had undergone some sort of conversion that maybe began with pragmatism. And then I think, between, I mean, he was a person who was drawn to, you know, traditional Spanish values. So sort of between that, um, his faith and I think the com- camaraderie around. Um, and the, the really interesting thing about that time is I think nowadays we don't associate um, conservatism or fascism with being literary, whereas there was there we, we think of that as kind of progressive and and back then it was like you know there was really prominent Catholic poets and then fascist poets and it, which is kind of like the world that Bolaño ra- writes about later in a, in a different context. So there was this I think Leopoldo kind of got pulled into this fascist or he would have probably called it you know more traditional Catholic literary scene. So that that was the patriarch of the, that was some of the backstory of what the son and the, the sons and the wife are working through in the documentary, El Desencanto. And then the, and then the father had to do a, you know, another kind of survival during the dictatorship. He wasn't someone who either went into, went to exile or he wasn't killed. He wasn't imprisoned or died in prison. He didn't go into exile and he didn't go into internal exile, which was what some kind of the sort of quiet coexistence or kind of silent re- rebellion of some writers like Vicente Alessandre, who won the Nobel Prize. He actually worked for the regime. Um, so, yeah, he was really seen as kind of com- complicit. And by 
you know, he was writing really, you know, conservative and sometimes fascist poetry. But then in the end of his life, he writes his poetry about how he can't believe anyone thinks he's fascist. So it's, he was a really, you know, complicated figure and he never really directly addressed his past. So he was, in terms of my work, it was really hard trying to, to write about someone like that. Um, and, and, and interestingly, after Spain transitioned to democracy, there was this, um, there was a spate of memoirs of kind of people who had at one time or another collaborated with the regime or worked for the regime. And they all published these memoirs, which were kind of called Lavados de Cara, like the washing of the face and explaining like, this is what I was really doing, or this is what people don't know, or I was really fighting against this. I think some of it sincere and true, so a lot of it not. And so Leopoldo never, he, he didn't live at that time. You know, he died before the end of the dictatorship. And I don't even know if he would have written that kind of memoir, but there's no sort of, um, there's no sort of decoder ring to figure out what was really going on. So I just used it from doc, you know, do documents and, um, and everything I could find to try to give my best you know, estimation of what, what happened. Yeah, and I mean, I think you uh, do an admirable job of just trying to understand, you know, the choices that he made. Um, I think, you know, in some ways it's because he's a figure who, I think partly because of his politics, um, you know, has sort of fallen into disfavor and doesn't have the prominence he once had. You know, it's, it, it's kind of a different situation than when you think of, you know, people who still have a certain prominence and influence. And then when, when you're a writer trying to reflect on their unsavory political connections, often it's like a sort of debunking exercise. I think mm -hmm. here you're just, um, you're, you have great, it seems like you have a kind of greater freedom in some ways because he's, because he's not somebody who's, um, who anybody feels particularly strongly about. Mm -hmm. So, um, I mean, I could be right, you know, I'm not, fully familiar no, with I his think reputation it, in yeah. Spain, but, but it seems like that gives you a certain leeway to just try to understand him rather than judge him. Mm -hmm. um, even though obviously like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of what he does has done mm -hmm. seems, um, you know, highly questionable. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I tried to humanize him. Yeah. He, um, and then I, and then I did, you know, obviously things that I thought were, you know, completely objectionable. I made that clear, but yeah, I tried to treat him. Ultimately this is, you know, uh, you know, well, you know, one of the one of the biggest compliments I got from my book was the the director of El Desencanto, Jaime Chavarri, who's a who's a friend now. And when he read the book, he's he wrote me an email, and among other things, he said he called my he said you're you have prod prodigious empathy, um, and I thought that was I mean that was one of the the nicest things I heard because especially in in Spain as in the U.S., you know, there's just a lot of polarization and empathy is something that's really challenging for everyone to kind of feel that across the aisle. Um, so yeah, I, I tried, tried to do that. And it's funny, my book hasn't been published in, in Spain or in Spanish. Hopefully it will be someday, but I'll be really curious about the reactions, um, how people feel about that empathy. Cause I think that's, there's a kind of politics around that. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose another factor is that, you know, in some ways the, um, the documentary, the, this Encanto is, is already a kind of, um, you know, I mean, I was going to say frontal assault. I mean, perhaps it's more subtle than that, but it, but it is really this kind of Oedipal reckoning with the father on the part of the sons. Um, yeah. I think, and so I think... in that sense, you know, his, his reputation was shaped by this sort of document that, that, um, you know, was, was also um, a product of this period of, a broader reckoning with the the sort of Franco era, and um, you know, during the process of transitioning to democracy, and so it's you know it's interesting that um, you know in some ways the definitive statement on him prior to your book was kind of this um, this one that's inflected with this kind of deep Oedipal angst and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this yeah, need I mean, to kind of this need to kind of bring him down a few pegs. Um, yeah, and the opening, opening and closing image of the film is this, because the, the, the occasion for the film was at the very beginning was there was going to be an unveiling of this statue of the father in his hometown. And so Jaime, the director, had just taken some footage 
of the the statue beforehand and it's just it's wrapped in a tarp and there's like as it happened there was kind of this fold of tape across its mouth and so it was really you know it was sort of like it's not obviously the, the male voices were dominant uh, you know all throughout spanish history and especially during the dictatorship and it's sort of like now the the patriarch doesn't get to speak and we get to speak and uh, so in that in the film became you know, read as a metaphor for you know it came out the year after franco died and so that was part of it part of it sort of going going viral was part of all the like taboo smashing things that Bonetto said but it was also because of the the metaphorical weight it just seemed to be there's some some things that you know, the zeitgeist, the moment and, and the work come together in an explosive way. And, and that's what happened with the film. And that's why it's, I mean, apart from the tomatoes being pretty fantastic on camera and entertaining, um, it, it did have this metaphorical quality and, and, and it's still shown, you know, on Spanish television once, once or twice a year. And, and Jaime, the director, you know, he's, he's made a lot of other films and this is, he still gets, you know, you know, a weird American knocking on his door to talk for hours and other, you know, other, he gets you know, in, interviewed about it again and again. What's, I mean, beyond that, uh, what's your sense of uh, Leopoldo Sr.'s sort of reputation and just how he's, uh, to what extent he's read or how he kind of fits in, you know, within the sort of Spanish literary canon as it's understood today? I mean, I think you were right in the saying, saying he's just kind of overlooked and ignored because I think, you know, I think a big literary project when you have, you know, he was one of the few people who were, who was uncensored during the, the years of the dictatorship. So I, there's definitely when you, the, the main efforts clearly are, you know, you know, figure out the voices that weren't heard or making, you know, studying the, the exiles or people, you know, who are who are fighting to get their voice into Spain? So clearly, he's he's not the priority. And of course, there's a whole politics inside of um, academia uh, around that. But yeah, there's but yeah, there's there's one scholar at the Complutense in Madrid in Madrid who's you know was just um, uh, fantastic, uh, Javier Huerta Calvo, who helped me so much. And I think he he's kind of been accused of being fascist for doing studies of Le, Leopoldo Panedo's work um but you know I, I think the work is most of it is mostly just kind of traditional catholic kind of earthy um earthy poetry which i think it's it's beautiful i really i really uh like like a lot of it um it, it may be ta taboo to you know to say that here but um but it is but it's really his his sons um and you know in the edible sense they kind of killed him in multiple ways with the documentary and in the, their own work and lives just loom much larger, uh, much larger than him. He was sort of the the inciting incident for for their story, um, uh, and yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I always ask myself, God, what would he have thought of this movie? I mean, I know what he would have thought. He would have hated it. But it's just like it's it's just wild to imagine if, if he had if he could if he had known that all of this was going to happen. Yeah, it's interesting. So one thing in the movie that, um, as I recall, sort of towards the beginning, there's um, at that point Leopoldo Maria, who's the 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 <laughs> the sort of real wild one, um, is. It seems that he's not participating at that point, or it's because mm -hmm. I remember they're talking at some point about, you know, what would it be like if he was part of this, and then in later scenes he is part of it, mm -hmm. um, but. It's it's odd because they're they're kind of reflecting on his absence, but um, you know it's 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 not um, it's not ever discussed by them, as I recall. Like you know, what would Dad think of this, or you know, what, what, um, I don't know. It's 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 like he's um, his his absence and his um, you know death are the sort of necessary precursor to this. Um, this project even happening, right? Yeah, I mean, me, I know Michi, the the youngest son, who was kind of like the instigator of like pushing to get the documentary made, and even he was sort of the like uncredited screenwriter in the sense of he was guiding the conflicts on cameras. Um, and he and he later in life he said, 
um, fuimos cabrones um, with their dad. Like we were, we were assholes to him. And so I think there was some sense of regret, um, you know, whether, whether it was, whether it was genuine or, or not, but in the, and I don't know if you know, there was a, or yeah, from the book mentions it, but then there was a follow-up documentary made in the nineties, like 15 years later, there was sort of like the saddest, like, I do you remember, the, I don't know if you remember those VH1. Like, you know, pop stars from the eighties. And this is like the, where are they, they now? And it's just like, it's so depressing. It's like, meet you, the charming, you know, on the first film is now, you know, kind of a, uh, you know, a premature, decrepit, alcoholic, Leopold and Maria, the kind of glance of um, brilliant poet is now just kind of infantilized in a insane institution or in a mental institution and kind of incoherent. And finally, the, 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 the older brother is just kind of a, a grumpy, uh, pudgy guy living uh, in obscurity. So it's sort of like the the first version is the like the the romantic let's burn it all down moment in their life, and then like the second documentary is like oh, this this is like you know how it ended up. I guess it's like that that meme on Twitter of like what is it like this is where it started and this is how it's going. You know, exactly. Like, yeah. The two docu- the two documentaries are sort of like perfectly suited to that meme. Yeah. I mean, in this, you know, another sort of literary reference I thought of in uh, when I was reading this and just kind of in relation to this family was um, Thomas Mann's Budenbrooks, mm-hmm. you know, where where you have a, a family history that's essentially a narrative of decline, right, of of decadence and of of sort of um, a gradual, you know, kind of loss of vigor and mm-hmm. and so you know it does seem like again that kind of final. Or the later documentary with this kind of um, follow-up portrait of these characters, you know, there is the sense of just dissipation and... Yeah, I mean, it is, it's, I think it's a story in a way of kind of, the, just the, the same old story of the, the European aristocracy, even though they were more like kind of the cultural aristocracy, but yeah, both, you know, Felicidad, the mother of the family, and Leopoldo, the 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 father they were both from you know well-to-do families before the war one one urban one the other provincial but but yeah it's really about there's express this is expression i was just talking about this with my wife um yesterday earlier today about the the expression spanish benito a menos which is sort of which there's not quite a, a translation in spanish or in english it's sort of like like kind of late sort of like when a family's been laid low or a kind of like you're, it's like the, it's a, it's a term in Spain of kind of people who like came to bad ends. Um, and that, and yeah, obviously the Panedo family wasn't, wasn't the only one, but it was some, you know, obviously universal stuff that started with, you know, in the early 20th century of the decline of the aristocracy in Europe. Yeah. And so, and, and then another theme is kind of the, the end of the line, right. The, the, um, and so, you know, this, this idea of a family that is sort of conscious of its own extinction or dying Mm -hmm. out, um, is, I mean, is both in the documentary and, you know, and, and it's odd, right. Because they're not even that old, but still there's this kind of idea that they're, they're the last. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, I suppose it's not surprising you end up in that sort of a state if, if that's kind of your, um, your sensibility from such a young age. But um, so, it, you know, it's, it's interesting as well, though, because I think, you know, a lot of the, the culture that comes out of Spain in that period, there is this kind of explosion of very, you know, wild and flamboyant um, cultural expression and um you know yet in this context it's it's really infused with this deep i mean on one hand it is this kind of you know oedipal rebellion um and sort of break with the past but then it's it's really infused with this dark pessimism and sense of of no future Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i agree i mean it was yeah there, there is like a real darkness to the to I think to the film or into the all the problems of of the family and and I mean I mean I think Leopoldo Maria the 
the the son who is this political rebel and kind of a, a literary transgressor and, and visionary um you know in in a way he's sort of there's this way of reading what his work and what he did to himself to his body he just sort of like physically de- destroyed himself that he was kind of he sometimes he's read as just like a, a metaphor for like what what the di- dictatorship did to, to the people um and into the to the soul so again that's there's and that's what drew me to the bonetos i mean it was like the metaphors were just so already there that i i tried my best not to lay it on even thicker than it was just in, inherently because they they really lend themselves to it. even like the three brothers are sort of different literary archetypes you have like leopoldo maria who's sort of yeah like how you're saying the he sort of imports the the french um maudi you know, like the, the um, transgressive French poet kind of hard living. And then you have uh, Juan Luis, the oldest brother, who's kind of the bearer of tradition, but then kind of does this like Salinger recluse thing later on. And then Michi, like kind of the, the, the charming play, playboy, the scenester. So you have these very um, different arch- archetypes. And, and then, you know, there's this kind of Brothers Karamazov thing. It's just all that stuff like like the whole thing about the prophecy of the end of the line you know you it could just you know they could have just framed it as like yeah like we drink a lot and we all seem to be impotent so we're probably not going to have kids but no it's like instead they talk about you know one of wagner's uh, you know like you know they talk about the Wittelbach family which was the patron for Wagner and and so they make it they add this like poetic glaze to everything to make it all more glamorous and I you know and I was totally drowned like drawn to that because I think there is this feeling you know life is life is banal and what's like the great thing about like art music movies um poetry is it is it just adds a bit more gravity to life so so it doesn't all feel quite so so pointless yeah and these I mean, again, I think this idea that, you know, on one hand, we can, you know, draw comparisons to all of these literary models. Um, but, you know, what's also significant is that the they themselves see that seem to view themselves entirely in that way. Right. So um, they're they're constantly viewing their lives through the prism of, of books. And, um, you know, one I mean, maybe going to the one, you know, female figure in this story who's a very fascinating one. You know, it's, I guess one thing that I love about the story is just that, you know, it's like they're all, each one could be the most fascinating at any point. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're, there's not a, there's not a dud among them. Like they're all yeah, no, that's interesting. True. But whenever, whenever I'd be doing a chapter, like for a section focusing on one, I'd always have this feeling like, oh, this is my favorite panado. And then I'd spend yeah. a week, you know, a couple of weeks on another and I'd be like, no, this is my favorite. I agree. They're just, they're all absorbing. So, I mean, Felicidad, the mother is, um, I mean, she's somebody who explicitly kind of sees herself and you, this, I think she says this early in the film as, you know, through the prism of Madame Bovary and that's mm-hmm. kind of, and, you know, it's, I mean, she's actually from the city, but then, she describes going to the first going to the province um, where Leopoldo is from and sort of, you know, her immediate association of it is with Madame Bovary. And she doesn't, you know, and oddly there's a kind of glamour to that, even though, you know, that's not, I mean, my reading of Madame Bovary is the, <laughs> the province, you know, the provinces are, are miserable and depressing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this kind of mediocre woman is, is uh, ruined by the combination of them and her, kind of addiction to literature but you know she for her you know madame bovary seems to have a kind of admirable and sort of glamorous sheen um but so she i mean she uh in her earlier life is from a prosperous madrid family um then she sort of becomes a uh i mean her family's conservative but she becomes supportive of the republic and um, you know, her father is a doctor, so that's how she sort of ends up essentially being a nurse, right? Um, and then she, you know, encounters Leopoldo and her, 
it seems always as if her romance with him is shaped by this sense of the sense of herself as a kind of literary character or something mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, and then I think, I think she, he, she became a muse. And I think that's, she was just so in love with, with literature. And I think then she found, you know, a poet kind of became infatuated with her and the poem is about her. And so kind of converted her into literature or into a character. And I, and I think in a certain sense, like um, it's like they fell in love with that more than actually the other person. Like she fell in love with being someone's muse or, and, and, you know, and he fell in love with this idealized image of her in his writing. So in a, in one way they were like the perfect, they were like the perfect storm in the sense they were, per, they were the perfect fit liter, literarily, but they weren't, you know, in life actually. And I, she says something like, you know, like, you know, she made the mistake of taking literature literally. Uh, and, and I, I, I just, I love that. And, and then later on when she, you know, she talks about how kind of she miserable she was in her marriage. And then, you know, people are reading Leopoldo's books that have these odes to her. And, you know, she has this feeling of the readers have this idea of their marriage and her that doesn't correspond to reality. And she has this great quote in her memoir that was, that's something like uh, literature is ne- meant to be read, not to be lived next to the people who write it. Um, and I, I think, I think that it's just great. Cause it talks, it captures both the seduction of like, you know, art making and being, being around the people who make art. And then like, you know, what that process is, is actually like, whether it's, you know, I think in reality, most the, the art, artistic process is just like very, you know, boring day, day after day. And for the more tumultuous sides of it get romanticized, but it, yeah, it's not the, the process is not the work and, and the person who created it is not the work. And, uh, and I, I just, I mean, I think the, her struggle with all of that, I just, I related, I related to that. Um, and, and love, you know, as much, you know, not that she had to suffer, but you see through all her travails, how living that kind of life plays out. But I, you know, I, the documentary really turned her into a legend because she's an Incredible in it, and then she published a memoir afterwards. It was briefly a bestseller, and then she even appeared as an actress in a couple movies because there was kind of, you know, she was already kind of known in the Madrid scene, and and then different filmmakers sort of got to know her and featured her. It was it was great. I did an event just a couple weeks ago um, with the Meadows Museum, this this uh, Spanish art museum at Southern Methodist University, and. And I, so the interesting thing is in the 19, then I think in the late sixties and early seventies, Felicidad was a host mother for a study abroad program uh, in Madrid. I think principally from Kalamazoo college, but possibly some other schools. So as I was working on the, the book, I had this guy contacted me who, um, who stayed with her and we had this great conversation and parts of it made it into the book. But then since the book has come out, I think I've had, three or four other people contact me. I'm like, oh my God, I heard about your book. I, I lived with Felicidad. And then just this last, um, just this last event I did a week or two ago, another guy appeared on the Zoom chat, you know, that he had also um, uh, lived with Felicidad and she made an impression on everyone because she had this very old world uh, elegance and, and wistfulness to her. Yeah, and I mean, for her, it's, you know, she's the only one who kind of lives fully through, but, you know, I think of there as being a kind of part one and part two mm-hmm. of the story. Totally. Um, mm-hmm. And she, I mean, in the documentary, I think uh, Michi, the youngest son, sort of says that he, you know, he didn't really know her, you know, because his, so Leopoldo Sr. dies at 52, is that mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, relatively young. And so it seems that they all experienced their mother in a completely different way um, in this in this kind of second phase of their lives with mm-hmm. the absence of the father. And she, you know, she, I mean, she remains this kind of figure who's um, obsessed with her own kind of status as a kind of literary character in some mm-hmm. sense. But but the way that works kind of shifts um, after after she's no longer the muse to after that's no longer defined primarily as her being mm-hmm. the muse to her husband. 
Um, and so there, there's also, I mean, you know, with all the Oedipal stuff, there's also all of this kind of weird, you mentioned the sort of incest. Um, yeah, it's sort of like literary, it's of like literary, it's kind of literary incest. Like clearly yeah. it's never real, but they love, yeah. I mean, it's also just, they just love the scan, the scandalizing. And so, uh, yeah. So there is this period where Felicia, that's kind of second youth after Leopoldo, her husband dies and she starts going out. And this is when late in the dictatorship where there's starting to be, you know, there's some kind of subterranean gay, gay-ish bars. And there's kind of like a scene and she's out on the scene with her oldest son. And yeah, in the, in the Desencanto, Juan Luis tells this story, but oh, we were at a restaurant in, in Barcelona and the waiter thought, um, that I was my mom's gigolo and that turned me on which I mean that's just them being being provoking for provocation's sake but yeah she got to live this sort of second life which I think suited her way better than being um being a just a, a Spanish housewife Right. So she, I mean, in some sense, her, I mean, because then it also becomes a life live more in public, as you were describing, right? So it, it seems like her, her subordination in the first phase of her life to this, I mean, both to him, but also to this idea of herself as a muse um, is, is kind of something that seems to, you know, I mean, prior to the, you know, prior to this, she's, you know, uh, living through these kind of dangerous times in Madrid during the civil war and, um, you know, having quite an exciting and adventurous life in some ways. Um, and then, you know, she essentially becomes, as you said, a, a, a sort of housewife who's subordinated to raising children, but also to this idea that that's her function now. Um, and then, you know, she kind of goes wild after, <laughs> after her husband's death. And, you know, then the, I, I mean, this part one, part two idea is also, you know, not surprisingly, there's a great deal of Don Quixote in this whole story. But, right, you know, right. what I was thinking, what I'm thinking of specifically is the, you know, in part one of Don Quixote, you have, you know, Don Quixote and Sancho doing their thing. And then in part two, the difference is that the book has been, the part one has been published, right? So mm -hmm. when they go around the world, they're are perceived as characters in this book mm -hmm. um and so there's kind of this redoubling of, of yeah, that's such era. a good that's i never made that connection that's that's so perfect yeah it's sort of like the uh the heightened self-consciousness of their that they're now that people know who they are and they're aware of that yeah that's a great that's a great call because i love the quixote thing of like consuming too much literature makes you go crazy, which I think of that as the sort of the key to the, the Panetos. So that's a good, really great observation. Yeah, and, and just, you know, it, especially with the documentary, right? I mean, after that, their lives become, I mean, in the same way that Don Quixote and Sancho are sort of wandering around, but they're, you know, they're still like doing the same thing, but they're doing it for a kind of reading public mm -hmm. or audience that already perceives them as these characters. And so it seems that after the documentary, appears they you know they essentially become first and foremost characters in that film and then you know that that's that becomes what kind of defines their lives and i think with leopoldo maria the the son who you know he ends up then getting you know fictionalized leopoldo maria is the sort of the transgressive brilliant middle son and he ends up getting fictionalized and you know or i think he's fictionalized in two bolaño movies or bolaño books and then not, and then appears as himself in another and other people wrote novels about him they wrote memoirs about knowing him and he you know so there, that's so much you know about the, the the creation of his myth but also there was there's this kind of like ongoing conversation about him of like how like how much of his because he would just go to parties and just do like cr just crazy shit and some of it I think it was clear like oh he's he's ill he needs care he's mentally ill and then uh, but it was also like oh but he's a super provocative guy who get who gets off on really causing a lot of trouble so there was like what what was his real mental illness and what was like the performance of a create the crazy right mentally ill writer and so it was like where where was it authentic and where was it like um, sort of deliberate myth building? Cause clearly they're the most, you know, canny storytellers 
you know, ever. And, and, and they knew how these cultural, you know, narratives work and ha- how to, how to feed them and, and play with them. They were so good at that. So, um, and I guess, yeah, the question was like, you know, how much, in, how in control of himself was he? And then in how in control of the narrative that, that grew, that grew up around him was, was he, and it's all, you know, there's no clear answers, but clear, clearly all of that is, is it, is it play, especially in Leopoldo Maria, but in the, the whole family uh, together. Yeah. And I mean, it's also notable that of course he's the one who carries the father's name. And mm-hmm. so, and of course also becomes a poet. So, you know, in some sense, it seems like a great deal of what he's doing is just kind of inverting his, his father's trajectory, mm-hmm. um, you know, from this, you know, if his father moves from this period of kind of, you know, a certain kind of bohemian experimentation and poetic freedom to kind of, you know, being boxed in, allowing himself to and kind of embracing being boxed into this hierarchical authoritarian regime um, that, you know, in some way he, um, he is the one who kind of assigns himself the task of breaking out of all of that in the most pronounced sort of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I do think it is. It's, it's kind of, they, they were all carrying that history on their shoulders and they all dealt with it in, in different ways. And he's, you know, and he, I mean, he's really, Leopoldo Maria is really kind of Deluso Guattarian sort of schizo type <laughs> figure. I mean, and, and seems to really cultivate that as sort of a. I mean, he goes and he goes and visit, he visits them in Paris. Right, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And so he's, he's really a sort of, um, you know, he's somebody who, well, again, I I think another thing that's interesting about all of these characters is their incredible self-consciousness. Like they're all, um, you know, they're, they all seem fully aware of whatever it is they're doing at any given moment. Um, so that there's always that kind of layer of reflection. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, you know, that's part of why I think they're all so fascinating. Um, and, you know, as far as the, um, I mean, and, and as far as the documentary goes, as you said, it's kind of um, engineered by the youngest son, Michi, as kind of a, you know, a, a cultural provocation, mm-hmm. which is also obviously immensely personal. Um, and I mean, he's in some ways sort of the, I mean, he's the one who doesn't really have a literary output, right? I mean, actually all of them do except for him. Yeah, I mean, he wrote he wrote some short stories right. when he was like a late teen or you know, mid to late teen. And then he was a movie critic later later in life. But yeah, it was, I, I think you can see El Desencanto as sort of like his main, his, his masterpiece, his, you know, obviously the, the Jaime, the filmmaker, it's his masterpiece, but in the sense of kind of like as a, a screenwriter of sorts, be a, a, a ghost screenwriter behind the scenes. It was definitely kind of a, a, his work in a certain, certain sense. But yeah. And I mean, what I was going to say is, uh, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't sort of try to have a conventional literary output in, in the way that, um, the oldest most obviously does, you know, Le- Leopoldo Maria is writing poetry, but doing it in this, you know, incredibly um, provocative and, and sort of um, outsider kind of way. But, but he instead dedicates himself to this kind of, as you said, being a kind of scene stir, but also to just, you know, I mean, creating or orchestrating this documentary, which, as you brought up earlier, is in many ways a kind of um, proto-reality TV type project. And so in that way, he's sort of, you know, the most prescient because mm-hmm. he really, um, it's, it's as if he somehow glimpsed where, you know, media and culture was going. Mm-hmm. Um, because this film, the, the thing I saw recently that I was thinking about in relation to this is um, Grey Gardens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which is another one where like, you know, if you watch it now, it's sort of, um, it's maybe hard to see how revolutionary it was as well, because it, you know, it had that kind of reality TV quality. And so just seeing the kind of inside of this 
extremely bizarre household and you know this completely unfiltered portrayal of um of these people's lives um really was a a sort of um prescient um type of of production and and this this film as well although I, it's a bit different because you know, in some sense, it's, I mean, partly because of the immense self-consciousness of all the, mm -hmm. the people involved in it. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it does seem like in some ways he was a sort of, um, you know, somebody who anticipated, that, you know, through his kind of, you know, airing out the family laundry in public kind mm -hmm. of gesture of, of, um, of organizing, this documentary is, is sort of somebody who, you know, he, instead of kind of pursuing the family uh, tradition of writing poetry, he's kind of pointing forward to um, a very different kind of culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, definitely. I mean, he was, I mean, he, he was the youngest son. So I think he had been raised on more TV than the other sons as kind of Western culture and technology, you know, were finding its way more into Spain starting in the 60s. So he he grew up with that. He was the most obsessed with his, with movies. And I think Nietzsche, you can also read what he did. And did. You, you know, a lot of people talk about why he didn't, you know, write, why he didn't really become a writer in the, in the full sense of committing himself. And some people would just say he was lazy. Other people, you know, this, this girlfriend who was with him for a while really made it clear there was more there was some sense of insecurity you sit down and nothing's good enough because he was a huge reader and and it was kind of he was never going to meet his own standards and then you can see it as that was his way of rebelling against his father well everyone in my family's writer i'm not going to be a writer that's kind of he said that as sort of this was this was the family um business but i think yeah i mean he definitely anticipated you know, where the culture was going, because in the late Franco years, you did start to have more of a counterculture, drug, sex, all that stuff it was simmering up, you know, to the surface. And then the 80s in La Movida, which was this just incredibly vibrant, wild uh, counterculture time in, in, in Madrid, but in the, the rest of the country, too, to a small extent, which is, which is where Almodovar gr grew out of, um, grew out of that. I mean, Michi was like, that scene sort of started or the precursor to that scene was Michi's scene in Madrid um, in the, in the you know, early to mid seventies. So he was kind of, yeah, he was kind of living in the, the future a little bit of where things would be going with Spain. So it would make sense that I think, you know, he had some, yeah, prophetic maybe feeling about, about what would happen if you made, if you made a film, a film like this um and you know and then he totally co you know coasted off it for a year people would joke like oh yeah he didn't pay for a drink for or years after making a, a desencanto and and you know it probably didn't help him in terms of being a um a budding alcoholic at, at that time of being that kind of being famous he married a movie star you know afterwards they were married they were divorced six months later so he definitely had this like holiday you know this Hollywood reality TV sens sensibility, which I don't think did him much good personally. And then, I mean, I think, you know, if, as I was saying, it's, it's hard uh, for me to figure out who's the most fascinating because they're all, depending on who I'm thinking about, they're all, I mean, perhaps the one I was, you know, the, the one who maybe we haven't talked about yet as that much is the oldest Juan Luis, mm -hmm. who's sort of, I suppose might seem, you know, he doesn't have the kind of wildness of Leopoldo Maria or the kind of, um, you know, charming scenester stuff that Michi has, as you're just describing. But he's, I mean, he's definitely a fascinating character as he appears in the documentary. <laughs> well, yeah, and he, he was really playing like a character. I was talking to someone about this the other day. Um, he really kind of plays a a character of himself because he had very ambivalent feelings about making the film. So, and like, he sort of was like, I'm just going to act even more pompous, pompous than I am on film. And, you know, and he, he kind of has different, in some scenes he's being very earnest talking about his father's history, saying, Oh, there's these things people don't know about my father that he tried to bring Spanish exiles back. And then there's that other scene where he's like drunk talking about his fetiches, these like, these fetish oh, yeah. objects right 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 yeah um, 
whichever way, you know, when I've screened this Encanto, I screened, I screened it in a lot of uh, American cities and people always crack up about through that scene. Cause he's just being so, so ridiculous. Yeah. And he, he starts imitating an Argentine accent. Yeah. Right? yeah he, does, he does a Borges talking accent. Talking about Borges and yeah, he's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, he's, so he's sort of the, I mean, on one hand, he's the one who has to, and another point is that he's the one who's sort of um, made to assume the father role after his father dies. Mm-hmm. And that's where, you, you know, part of where you get this weird kind of um, playing at, you know, incestuous dynamics, which which his mom seems okay with going along with. And, um, you know, but he he's probably the one who most conventionally tries to, carry on the legacy of poetry um and you know as i mean he's another one who i'm curious what your sense of whether he you know has much recognition for that or what his current status is yeah he yeah juan luis um i mean he was he was interesting and yeah, it was like the, the he's sort of generationally out of sync um, with his brothers that he just and then and also with the sort of poetic generation that he fell fell in with. But yeah, it's, he was he was older. He hadn't lived with his brothers most of his life, or even with the family because he got sent off to boarding school. Then he lived with his grandmother, so he was kind of his his own thing. But did but did some the the most interesting thing I found out about him, or not the most interesting one, is that. Um, that he was actually sort of doing like light espionage for when he was a late teen for the Spanish communist party that were like, you know, had links to Cuba and was sort of kind of shadowing this friend of his father, this Cuban, uh, he'd been a big newspaper editor in Cuba and was now in Spain. And supposedly, I mean, it may have just been like, he didn't really do anything, but he was supposed to, he had a kind of assignment um, which I thought was really, really fascinating. Um, and it was like his, ha- his handler, who's now this kind of well-known writer and personality who's in his nineties was the one who told me this. I had never um, heard that. So, and, but I think that was, I think, I think there's this sort of m- mythical fight he had with his father, where his father was sort of like, you know, get out of my house forever. And I, they never say exactly what it was about, but I think it, it was about that. But yeah, then, then Juan Luis, he kind of, yeah, he lives it. I mean, he was definitely a, a you know, a, a big, you know, sex and drinking kind of guy. Um, but that's sort of, that's just part of being a panero. And so beyond that, he lived a more, a more staid existence of being a, in a magazine editor in Latin America for a while and publishing his books of poetry here and there. And then coming back to Spain, he married this, or didn't marry, lived with this doctor for a long time in a, in a small town in, in, in Catalonia, not far from the, where, where Bolaño ended up. Um, and, and so he, he consistently published poetry and really by, and it was more, more conventional poetry. It wasn't, wasn't this sort of genre busting um, taboo smashing stuff that, that his brother Leopoldo Maria was doing, but it sort of really grew the esteem for him grew over the years and then kind of new generation of, of poets discovered him and um, really valued him. So he's a, he's a pretty, he's a, he's a respected uh, poet for, for sure. And his, you know, he still has his, um, and he, and he wrote a memoir too. And, and yeah, his, his work's really great. It's just, it's sort of, sort of traditional in the like, it's kind of poetry that like smells like whiskey and ashtrays, you know, it's like kind of that romanticized that's kind of thinking about death and, mortality and uh in the passage of time but you know i i, I like that it's, it's beautifully written and i love i love those kind of themes i mean it, it, he was kind of a he was mellowed by the end of his life i mean what what was so interesting about m- my doing the research for my book is clearly like these people are mythified in my own mind you know i never i never met any of them um but i read their letters watched films about them but then when you were with the people who are close to them like it, it it really humanizes them in a really in a way that i that i don't think the bonito myth gets a lot which i you know i loved when i talked talked to and visited uh, carmen his 
his um, his partner. It was like, you know, she was telling that like how much sugar he would uh, put in his yogurt. And, and then the, of like when she would have, because she had kids from another marriage and then they would have family birthday parties. And like, you know, he would usually stand kind of on the side and take pictures and how much he loved her. Uh, her granddaughter and that was like in a way that really just doesn't fit in the Bonetto myth you know it's like the mythos is but by the end of his life he was like a mellowed you know uh, you know uh, aging poet who had found this domestic situation that that worked for him and I, and I like really like bringing that I mean but then you have like you know the other brothers really lived out the myths to the end and 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 of course, there's certainly humanized them when I, you know, when I heard stories from the people with them, but Leopoldo Maria, the brother died in, you know, a psychiatric institution, you know, kind of that's the perfect end to his myth. Michi ended up going back to his father's hometown, Astorga, kind of the, the paradise lost in the origin of the Panero story and he kind of goes back there almost kind of self-consciously knowing he's, he's he goes back there to die and that also feels you know very crafted um you know in a way and when least his end feels a bit more like banal just like you know kind of more like my life and like yeah i live here and yeah, you know i'm with these people and, and i do these things whereas the other two brothers seemed to, to carry the mythos um all the way to the end and what about um, Felicidad in her later years? She, she ended up moving to Irún, which is a small town in the, in the Basque country, where I actually drove, drove by there on the highway a couple weekends um, ago when I was visiting some friends. Uh, and that was more just to kind of, that, that was also kind of less, you know, romanticized or literature-fied. It was her sister had lived there and she moved there to be closer to her. And then her sister died and then, and uh, I mean, she had, she also moved there because Leopoldo was in a, a psychiatric institution there and to be closer to him before um, to visit him and help. And it was interesting what you were saying is that she did have this moment after Leopoldo Panero, her husband died, that she kind of had this blooming and got to live a second life. But then the care kind of and devotion to Leo, kind of the second Leopoldo really did absorb her life. And then she, you know, she ended up dying of, of cancer there. I mean, she was a melancholy woman, I think in some ways addicted to melancholy and, and all the, the, the Basque country is really, really beautiful. It is kind of melancholy in the sense of it's gray and rainy a, a lot of the year. And so in a way I see that as kind of like fitting. I picture her, you know, near the end sitting by the window. Is it like, you know, on a drizzly day? And that seems kind of fitting for Felicia. So, um, El Desencanto, the film is a little bit hard to get hold of. You've been hosting screenings of it, um, I think both in person before COVID and yeah. then also remotely. Um, so what's the, what's the future of that and people's ability to access it? Um, so that's a good question. So unfortunately, it's, it's about to get harder because I, I had um, purchased the North American rights to it for three years. And those three years are about to expire um and and i'm gonna talk to them about ex extending those rights but you know clearly not gonna be any i don't still don't think there's gonna be screenings anytime soon but if anyone's curious or wants to organize something they can um they can get in touch with me and, and i may be able to figure something out yeah, so well, I hope you're able to do that. And uh, I mean, there are, you know, I'm actually, I'm going to a film festival this weekend in New York. So there are certain things that are happening again. So, so maybe maybe to, at some point, but. Yeah, yeah, I was supposed to, you know, when my, my paperback came out or a month into, a month after the world shut down and I was supposed to be, I was going to do a, a second screening at Film Forum because I had done one the year before and so i was bummed to not 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 be able to do it again in new york new york was the best audience they like they laughed at all the, the most uncomfortable parts and it was the theater was almost fun, full and that was that was such a great experience yeah and film forum is up and going again so uh you know one can hope that mm -hmm. these these things will return but um but yeah, I do recommend uh, people look into the film and 
you know, if, if they have some way of doing this, see if they can arrange a screening. Um, and um, yeah, they're, you know, the, the film is just, um, it's, it's a, it's a good starting point for this whole story just because, because it's your starting point. And so it's probably a good preliminary to reading the book, but also you can read the book first. Um, either way, I recommend everybody, uh, you know, catch the Panero bug cause it's, you know, you'll, your life will never be the same. Um, they're they're such a you know it's it it is really like those kind of literary characters you meet and then they're just kind of part of this this pantheon or kind of constellation that you know in some way just kind of accompanies you through life. Um, so I'm sure you feel much more that way than I do, but um, I definitely feel that way just from from reading your book. So. Well, that that's that's thrilling to hear. Yeah. Um, so what are you working on these days, or? Do you have oh, projects in, in the works that are uh, yeah. you know, perhaps related to this in some way, or are you striking out in different directions? I, I, I do. Um, so I actually wrote a, a pilot uh, for a TV show for, I, I, based on my book on the Pinedos, and I always describe it in the, I always pitch it as it's succession meets the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, but clearly a project like that is not a no brainer, definitely not for Hollywood and, and, and even in that, not in Spain, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, have, I developed it with a, a, a producer in, in LA and then I'm kind of have connected with this prominent Spanish screenwriter in LA who would in theory be a showrunner. So but so from there, we're just trying to find if there would be a viable path of finding a partner. But I, it's just hard to picture anybody um, putting down r real money for that. I think, you know, Spain produced um, Casa de Papel. I think they call it Money Heist on Netflix. And so I think all anyone wants from Spain, which was a huge hit, I think all anyone wants from Spain is another is another Casa de Papel. But But I'm definitely not going to not going to give up on that. Uh, so who knows, maybe someday there'll be a, a Panero TV show. And, um, um, and then I, it actually, it, I, I can't say much about it, but it looks like I might be um, a podcast that I'd be doing might, might be coming together. It's actually related to, to us history um, and the, and the border in Central America. We'll see, we'll see if that happens. And I'm starting to develop um a possible new book idea, which is related to, to the arts, um, but it's not a narrative. Um, it's not a narrative book. I, I believe me, I, I've been digging. I always look around for where, where my, where something as good as the Panedos that will absorb me and is so unique and hasn't been, been written about, but I, I don't know. I think I actually, I kind of, we'll see what happens, but I think it might've just been a once in a lifetime thing of this incredible story that felt, you know, custom made for me just, just fell into my lap. Um, Cause I think when I sort of chase, chase after things, I think I find something like that never quite come, come, comes together. And this, I didn't even, didn't even plan on it. It just fell there and then I couldn't ignore it. So, so we'll, we'll see what, what else happens. Yeah. Well, anyway, we will uh, keep an eye out for the possible TV series, which would be great. Um, I really love the succession and Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, also useful references for my listeners just to get a sense of what you'd be getting into with this book. Um, and yeah, I just uh, look forward to your future work and thank you again for uh, coming on. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This was great.